0: Now, last week, we covered the incident where Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, calmed the storm and terrified his disciples. With all of the miracles and deliverances that he performed, they still see him as nothing more than one of the great prophets. Because of their paradigms and their lack of what we have, well, you know, a narrator, they simply cannot see through the clues that he's laying down. Of course, no one will be able to see the big picture until after the resurrection, and this is on purpose. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, Yeshua's identity, known only to the demons he's confronted so far, uh, had to remain secret, or they might never have crucified him. A knowledge of his identity, coupled with the works that he was doing, would have led, probably, to a violent armed uprising, which would have stood in stark opposition to the message of the kingdom that God was moving in human affairs, to save his own people, as well as the nation's, and not kill them. But had the people known, there would have been nothing stopping them. In the Beatitudes, you know, we see the recurring theme of nonviolence. The kingdom of God conquers through, you know, faithful witnesses and not by the sword. Now, after Constantine introduced Christianity to, you know, how useful violence could be in spreading religion, we lost sight of Yeshua's message, and now we have become so adapted to and dependent on violence that we feel naked without it. And today's message is about that. Violence versus peace. Yeshua versus the demons, and not Yeshua versus the demon possessed. At every turn, Mark introduces us to Yeshua's true enemies and shows us a new way of fighting the powers that be. Now, remember that the most common miracle recorded in Mark, by Mark, is uh, exorcisms. Mark is showing that the true enemies of humanity are not flesh and blood. We lose sight of that all too often. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture um, with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. Those are put up on Friday, every Friday, unless I'm sick which happened once, and even though I put it up on Saturday. So, you know, I, I get to it. They're not as edited as they could be, because 5,000 words is a lot to edit. But, you know, I do what I can. Now, all scripture this week, as in most weeks, comes from the ESV, the English Standard Version. That uh, is what my inner linear is, and in, in it. it just makes it so much easier. And uh But you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, so this week we're starting out with um, Mark chapter five. I, it's, this is the 23rd one in the series, and we only just started chapter five, but... There's so much, and I don't like to rush through it because these are the words of our Savior. These are this is, this is the messages that the, the Savior gave us, and each one deserves to be, you know, covered seriously and not just, eh, 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 let's get through the next one. I don't like that. Anyway, so this week, I, I, I have a very dramatic title for this one. It's Cosmic Encounters Part 2. The Legion in the Graveyard. Sounds like a, a Vincent Price movie or, or Christopher Lee movie or something like that. Anyway, chapter five, starting in verse one. They came to the other side of the sea. Remember, last week, uh, they were on the sea and Yeshua stopped the, uh, the winds in the way. Well, just get, I'm going to read the verse first. Okay. So they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, last week, we left Yeshua and his disciples in the boat at sea, where he had just calmed the storm with a word. He didn't call upon a higher authority. He just demanded that the sea be muzzled. That's that's the word in the Greek. It's be muzzled and always calm. Not exactly friendly. Not like, like, oh, you stop it. Come on, calm down. See? No. Be muzzled. Now, a Greek might have immediately credited him with being a god, or at least um like a demigod. But not the Jews. God is spirit. Everyone knows it. Sure, there are some strange and difficult things to explain in the Hebrew scriptures where it looks like folk, where different folks um met with a man they would later claim was Yahweh. But you know, this was different. They knew this guy. Now, at its widest, the Sea of Galilee was about seven miles crossed, and El Kursi, which many scholars believe is the location for this this week's event, is at the far eastern side um, of the widest point. A mile south from this is a little town where there are steep cliffs, and two miles away there are ancient cave tombs, dating from this time period. Now... They started in the northwest in Capernaum, and it would have been a pretty good trip, depending on how much luck they had, you know, with the winds, you know, going in the right direction, hopefully. Now one way or the other, from start to finish, it was at least two hours. They left at night, so it's likely still nighttime when they arrive, and you know that would make the most sense. But there's no city name, just the country of the Gerasenes. Which does, you know, which does mean that this is no longer Jewish territory. Since his childhood escape to Egypt, this is probably, oh, it's possibly Yeshua's first trip out of Galilee except to visit the temple for the yearly festivals. Now again, like the last story, this is remarkably more detailed than the accounts usually penned in Mark. So. It's likely that he's recording another eyewitness testimony and not passing along something he's heard orally, um, you know, from other believers. Remember that Mark was almost certainly the earliest gospel written within a few decades of Yeshua's death. Maybe even within two, you know. The others were considerably later. In fact, the other gospels depend very much on Mark's material um, but they all come at it from different angles. With Mark, of course, the focus is on Yeshua f- fulfilling the y- role of Yahweh as the warrior come to save slash shepherd his own people. Whereas, you know, Matthew, it's, um, Yeshua the teacher. Okay, in each one, John, it's, uh, Yeshua the, the word of God, you know, um, with all the divine, the high Christology, the divine aspects. Um. Okay, verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, what a difference between this and the first synagogue encounter in, in Mark 1, right? The demon in that unfortunate fellow in the synagogue waited until Yeshua laid down his message-slash-challenge before confronting him, you know, then the gig was up, and the demon knew it, and he was immediately trying naming magic on him by trying to use the power of Yeshua's, you know, properly pronounced name against him, right? Unfortunately, that doesn't work with Yeshua. I mean, unfortunately for the demon, right? It only works against other demons, I guess, because evidently they they believed it from somewhere and mythology got it from somewhere. Um, It doesn't work on God or on Yeshua. Obviously, it's like, oh, you want to just pronounce my name correctly and expect me? No. No. I don't go there. I don't play that. Um, But, you know, he gave it the old college try, right? you got to admire the demon's optimism. But here, on the other hand, we have a Gentile man A heathen, not in a synagogue, but in a graveyard. Talk about like unclean, piled on top of unclean. And this story is so detailed. It's heartbreaking. You know, whereas we know nothing about the man in the synagogue who had the demon. Again, you know, this comes across as having come from an, an eyewitness. And, you know, who knows, maybe the man himself. Notice that, unlike the incident in the synagogue, Yeshua doesn't start teaching or preaching. The man comes running to him. Of course, we not going to be at synagogue. Ah! And, you know, this area, probably, possibly. Anyway, uh, verse 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Such detailed history we're getting here. You know, whereas we know nothing about the leper or the paralytic in the verses to come we're going to find out more about how the demons or demons affect him this is something we never received in in, in any of the other previous cases of healing or deliverance in this case we're going to see how antisocial this makes the man cutting him off from community you know This is a form of living death. You know, in, in, excuse me, in the ancient world, where people simply did not exist on their own. You were son of, brother of, daughter of, wife of, etc. You know, you know, of such and such a person, people or, or clans, okay? You were defined by your associations, We have no clue about any of this for this poor man because the demons have deprived him of it all. He's all but dead, not physically, but as a human being and what makes us human. Verse 4. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched his chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So in the Gentile world, they were very careful with how they responded to possessed individuals. Uh, The person was believed to be, quote-unquote, touched by the gods, and therefore they weren't simply, uh, you know, going to shoot him with a bow, bow and arrow to take him out. They didn't dare. The gods had their hand on him, either to punish him, or he had the essence of a god inside him and... Therefore, was untouchable. Now, they did their best to keep him away from their settlement because he was dangerous, but they wouldn't dream of reaching out to harm him. You know, which was lucky for him. Uh, Let's see, verse 5. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You know, and geez, we're like quick to ignore the human element here, eh? This is just beyond the pale, horrible. Following the Jewish reckoning of time, he is tormented not day and night, but night and day, as the day begins biblically at sundown. The fact that he lived in the graveyard is not surprising, as it is considered an unclean place, and people generally avoid going there, and that's in all cultures, okay? Ancient cultures. Actually, now, too, kind of. Now, if these people were ancestor worshippers, and I have no idea if they were, then he would be able to eat of the offerings uh, left to sustain deceased relatives in Sheol, you know, a.k.a. the grave or the underworld. Um, Otherwise, he might have survived on um, food left for the gods by the people who felt he was touched by them. He was crying out in madness and, and physically harming himself and not just others. The word for stone here, but he's cutting himself, is not petra or kipha, but lithos. We get the word lithography from this word. So that's, if it sounds familiar, that's why. Now, rabbinic sources tell us that the classic signs of demon possession and madness are one, running around at night, which was believed to be unsafe due to evil spirits being on the prowl, which obviously for this guy, it's not really an issue. Two, staying overnight in the areas where dead were buried. Three, tearing clothes when they're not grieving. And four, being destructive of property. And this guy obviously meets all of those requirements. Now, verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him." So obviously he isn't, you know, the human being, isn't recognizing Yeshua by his appearance, okay? Something spiritual is going on here. The spirit in the man recognized who was approaching and ran and fell down at his feet. Just as all honor and shame community members know their status and their place, and, and the definition of a fool, by the way, was someone who didn't know how to act in accordance with his status, slash intelligence, slash skill, slash authority, um, whereas the wise man did. Therefore, you could be poor and wise and rich, or rich and a fool, all right? Um, now, the spirit recognizes someone higher up the cosmic hierarchy, a lot higher up. But even though he prostrates himself before Yeshua, he isn't done wheeling and dealing and trying to somehow get the upper hand. Verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Oh, and he's stubborn. In the next verse, we will see that he says this in response to a command to vacate the premises. He names Yeshua, and then he speaks an incantation. Did you catch that? That was an incantation. Much like the ones uh, the rabbis or um, modern uh, exorcists would speak, I adjure you by God, do not torment me little stinkers, trying to finagle some naming magic against Yeshua. Pretty bold, all right? Um, or, or maybe just pretty darn desperate and willing to try anything. I mean, how could things possibly get any worse for this demon right now, right? And he calls Yeshua something we have not heard yet in this gospel. I'm sure you've heard this before. Um, son of the Most High God. Now this is not a messianic title like messiah or son of man but a divine one. And the real kicker can't be ignored here that Yeshua has just been denounced by his own family in Capernaum at the end of chapter at the end of chapter 3 the demon recognizes exactly who Yeshua is but his own family including his mother, Miriam, and and James, uh, Yaakov, and, and, and Jude, who were all heavy hitters in the early church. They don't recognize him for who he is either. The irony is just unreal. Speaking of irony, here we have this long list of offenses against the demon who is talking to Yeshua. The torture it's been putting this man through for, you know, Who knows how long? And he's begging not to be tormented? Tell ya, some folks can dish it out, but they cannot take it. Verse 8 For he, Yeshua, was saying to him, the demon, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Actually, that sounded really half hearted. Let's say, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Yeah, that sounded, you know, more like I meant it, right? Now that's pretty cheeky to ask for mercy. Yeah, really. Okay, verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, this is interesting, and you may ask, well, Tyler, is Yeshua really the son of, if, if Yeshua is really the son of God, then why is he asking this demon's name? Well, that's a good question, and I'm so glad you asked. Personally, I think it was to prove a point to his disciples and to us. The demon named Yeshua and abjured him by God's name, I assume, although the text only says Theos. That's how things were done. But Yeshua gets, um, the name of the demon or slash group of demons, and then you know what? Doesn't use that name. The name given is legion, which is a Latin loan word, but found in Roman, Greek, and Aramaic texts. Whether this is the demon's real name or just an evasive answer, you know, we can't know for sure. But I have my own reasons for believing it is the real deal, you know. Um, you know, they're not really important right now, and there's nothing I can do to prove it to you anyway, so it's not worth spending time on now, let's assume for the sake of the argument that it's the demons or the group of demons' real name. Um, but here's what's cool in mythologies, okay? The gods would do literally anything to keep anyone from learning their true name. Read the myth of Isis and uh, Rey or Ra sometime for a typical pagan look at the beliefs about naming magic. But all Yeshua had to do was ask the question, and the demon spits out his answer. He probably wasn't happy about it, but he had no choice. He has to comply. Now that Yeshua has the name, the demon is left bereft of all hope. Poor, poor demon. Let's all take a moment to pity it. (gasps) But wait, there's hope yet. The demon scores upon a clever idea. Verse 10. And he, the demon, begged Yeshua earnestly not to send them out of the country. I'm, I'm replacing the pronouns here because, you know, we're separating the verses. So I'm going to be replacing pronouns. There's too many hymns (laughs) in this, in this section. In the ancient world, there was this concept of regional gods and we see it popping up occasionally in the Bible. All right. It's the reason that the Israelites were never particularly monotheistic until after the exile. They were instead henotheistic. We know that they worshipped Asherah, the mother goddess of the Canaanites, as the consort of Yahweh. We know this both from the Bible and from pottery shards, picturing them together with the caption, um, yod heh vav and his Asherah in Paleo-Hebrew. Oh, Although Asherah looks like a giraffe playing a harp to me, you know, in that, in that pottery shard, I'm going to have a link to that in the transcript. All right. Now, henotheism is when you believe in many gods, but you only have one at the very top of the food chain and the others are subservient. I did a teaching on this, um, I think it was part two or three in, um, isaiah and the messiah so you might want to check that out if you want to have more than just this bare bones little summary here now polytheism is where you believe in many gods who do not demand exclusive worship monolatry is what they have in mormonism where you believe in a great many gods but you're only allowed to worship your own god you know they believe that the gods were once people just like us but uh but they're only allowed to worship the one that they were born of. But, you know, like I said, Israel was henotheistic until after the exile. They worshipped Yahweh at the top of their pyramid of deities, but they had a lot of other gods whom they felt served under him, like Asherah, the fertility mother goddess, uh, Baal-Hadad, the god of storms, uh, Dagon of the grain harvest, you know, I'm going to tell you, oh, we're almost at the break here, the fish stuff is medieval midrash and not supported by the copious archaeology. Um, you know, we'll be back in, uh, oh, in five minutes. Hope you're uh, enjoying this so far. <music> Welcome back to the second half of um, oh, Character in Context. This week we are um, we're in the second part of the Cosmic Encounters series, and uh, that's where Yeshua is manifesting who He is at, in in a series of incidents that are going to be make it obvious after He's resurrected who He is, but aren't now um, as they're happening. And, uh, so this is the legion in the graveyard, this is uh, in the land of the Gentiles, and there's been some negotiating, one-sided negotiating on the part of the demon group who does not want to be thrown out of the man, and now they do not want to be thrown out of the region, and we were just talking about henotheism, which is, uh, what what the Israelites were before they were monotheists, which didn't, of course, happen until after the exile. And I was mentioning that I discussed this, and I, I think it was either part two or part three of Isaiah and the Messiah. So if you look in the idolatry episode, I talk about this. But um, just backtracking a tiny little bit, the Israelites never worshipped, Yahweh exclusively until after the exile, they believed in regional gods who had um, different responsibilities. It's like they worked for for Yahweh. That's that's how it would have been looked. Yahweh was at the top of the pyramid, and all these other gods were like doing their little cosmic functions. And I had mentioned um, Asherah. Um, the mother goddess, the fertility goddess. Not all goddesses are fertility goddesses. That drives me crazy about all the memes I see. And not all gods were sun gods. And as a matter of fact, most of the goddesses listed on those memes that say they're fertility are not, and most of the gods that are said to be sun gods are not. You know, they each had their own jobs, you know. Not everybody was, you know, the whatevers. Anyway, uh, Baal Hadad, known as Baal, in, um, in the Hebrew scriptures, was the god of storms, the god of rain. So he, was, he brought the rain. They loved him because you can't have crops in a dry area without rain. Dagon was the uh, god of the grain harvest. Which is why, when they took the ark captive, <laughs> the Philistines, and the people started getting plagued, they actually took it out of the Temple of Dagon and put it out in a grain field instead. It's like, okay, we're going to put you out here. We're going to put you on Dagon's turf. And uh, it's something that you miss if you don't know the archaeology. Um, Ishtar of uh, the Babylonians and Astarte uh, of um, of the Canaanites, they were war goddesses. Now, the reason that... Um, they did this the reason they worshiped all these other gods was they 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 were deeply entrenched in in these beliefs that gods were regional and you couldn't get anything done without their help you know ra was only the sun god in egypt but not in babylon that was shamash they they couldn't get things done outside of their their region and it It just didn't occur to people that it was the exact same sun in the sky, I suppose. You know, but they were spiritually minded and not scientifically minded like we are. So it doesn't really matter what makes sense to us. So anyway, these demons didn't want to be sent. Legion did not want to be sent out of their region. Perhaps there is, you know, there is something to the uh, idea of regional authority. Maybe if they left that region, they wouldn't be as powerful in possessing humans, or or maybe they just believed that to be the case because that's what humans believed. I don't know. But we do know that they were desperate to stay put for some reason that is unspecified. So, again, these tormentors are begging for mercy. I mean, dang! But Yeshua cannot just leave them with the ability to come back into this man or to go into somebody else. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. If you needed any more proof that this was a Gentile community, then look no further. Pigs are unclean. Well, once they're dead, they're unclean. They're actually not unclean when they're alive. Did you know that? Unclean animals are only unclean for eating. Or their carcasses are unclean. But when they're alive, they're just fine. Um, But they're unclean for food and and do not fall under the category of food, you know, in in the Bible. Jews would not be raising them. Although they are clean while alive and useful, they are unclean once dead and unclean for eating. They were used extensively for pagan sacrifices. um, As we see in Maccabees, when Antiochus Epiphanes had a pig sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem shaming Yahweh, or trying to, and dedicating his temple to his own false god. Now, many, many, many Jews died rather than prove their loyalty to Seleucid Greeks by eating pig sacrificed to idols. Now, among the gods who were said to love pig were Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, Nemesis, and Mars. Pig was just synonymous with paganism in the ancient world. I don't know how they figured out that these gods loved pig. I think, honestly, I think it was the priests because, you know, they would take that food in. And they would get to eat the leftovers. No, I I kid you not. So, I'm thinking like they were going like, you know what? Zeus wants. Zeus wants ribs today. With some barbecue sauce. (laughs) Hey. Hey. I can admit that I used to enjoy that stuff. It's tasty, okay? Let's 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 not pretend that it's gr- I don't know if I could it would be hard for me to eat it now. I, I could eat it to save somebody else's life, certainly. I could even eat it to save my own life if I was like starving to death that was the only thing to eat, but it is not my first choice and you know Pakua Nefesh, the uh the Jewish uh, you know you it is permissible to break many, many of the laws in order to legitimately save life if there's no other alternative. But <laughs> you don't just do it. Anyway, so verse 12. And they, the Nemans, begged him, Yeshua, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Ugh, oh, I have to tell you. But this would have read like a punchline to a joke among the uh, early Jewish Christian listeners. Demons residing in pigs that would be sacrificed to demons. How utterly appropriate. They would have been cracking up. Ah, uh, Verse 13, so Yeshua gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of and entered into the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank, into the sea, and drowned in the sea. So, here's where the story gets tragic, and not from like a PETA, you know, kind of. But 2,000 pigs, when subjected to the torment that just one man was enduring, they killed themselves. Sidebar here. When we look at the difference between humans and animals, being made in God's image versus being made to be managed and ruled over by God's image bearers, This is a striking picture that flies in the face of a lot of animal rights rhetoric. While there is no need to be cruel to animals, they are not equal to or better than people. This man's struggle against enough demons to drive 2,000 pigs mad is very inspirational. Yeshua freed the man by condemning the pigs. Not because he hated the pigs, but because he loved the man. One man is greater than 2,000 animals. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Now, in the Testament of Solomon, 511, written by a Greek-speaking Jew, Asmodeus, the the king of the, the demons, begs King Solomon not to condemn him to water, as it was believed that land demons would be destroyed if they were exposed to water. Or at the very least, it would be hellaciously uncomfortable, and they would be trapped there. So this story goes, you know, along with the established Jewish beliefs at that time. In the eyes of the audience, these demons would never harm anyone again. What, what else were they sp- we supposed to see here? And by the way, we're going to... <laughs> I think it's when we do the woman with the issue of blood. I'm actually going to read to you quite a bit of, of the Testament of Solomon, which is so messed up, and it's funny. Okay, they've got demons who are specifically in charge of diarrhea all right and flatulence, <laughs> yeah, okay <laughs> this is fiction, okay now but the animals you know we have them running into the into the water and and drowning, and we shouldn't miss that this is a very blatant allusion to Pharaoh's armies being driven into the sea and destroyed. We just keep coming back to this Exodus language, you know, story after story. Yeshua is now not only leading his Jewish brethren out of bondage to the evil one, but a Gentile as well. And as we see both the children of Israel and the mixed multitude being delivered from slavery to Pharaoh, it would hardly be a true picture of the Exodus if only Jews were being set free from bondage, right? nor would it be in keeping with the repeated theme of the nations being set free in Isaiah. Now, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. Now, the herdsmen, okay, they were responsible for, um, replacing animals that were killed due to their negligence and, uh, oh my gosh, they had to be thinking no one is ever going to believe us. They're going to kill us. In a situation like this, there is no better story than the truth, I suppose. I can't hardly say it was a raiding party, because the townspeople would have gone looking for them, and plus there were, like, undoubtedly tracks leading off the cliff. This was like the worst day ever. They told everyone. In the city and in the surrounding country. They seriously needed everyone to know it wasn't their fault or they were ruined. Plus, they were probably scared out of their wits. So, you know, in a time without movies or radio or television, people were going to drop everything to investigate. This was like the biggest thing that had ever happened. Verse 15, And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were expecting to find the pigs gone, but they probably didn't expect this. Everyone knew this guy. You couldn't even bury your people. Without having to deal deal with his violent ravings, he was notorious, and now he was sane. He was dressed and sitting right there before God and... Everyone, you know? And and the worst thing was that he wasn't touched by the gods anymore. This stranger had defeated the god who used to be acting, speaking, or whatever through him. That's a terrifying thing, because their gods aren't nice people. They're petty, vindictive, flawed, sinful, and vengeful, just like people, only they had powers. Imagine if your worst enemy in the world had powers. No, right? The horror. Now, imagine someone came along and took your enemy's power away. Just like that. <laughs> but in your world, that doesn't automatically make him your friend. He might just be worse. And he killed all the pigs. Not a good sign. He killed their pigs. No more community sacrifices to their gods, and this was beyond bad. This guy was starting a war, and they were the ones who would pay the price when their gods took revenge. And they were right, of course, about him starting war. He had started a war with the powers of the demonic, and he was taking no prisoners but they didn't know that he would win the war and that they weren't going to be the cannon fodder. They saw a Jew making trouble. He saw people in need of deliverance. What did the second servant song say? Isaiah forty nine six. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth this uh this isn't something that he only told his disciples to do and never modeled himself he went to another unclean person remember the leper and this will also be the theme of the next two weeks as well and and he made them whole he restored them to community didn't just heal but restored. And this guy is the most amazing example yet because he wasn't Jewish and living in the land. He was a Gentile living among the tombs. Dead bodies. Mega unclean. Jews call it grandfather of impurities in the Talmud. In fact, you could literally not have found a more unclean person on the face of the earth. Yeshua went to the person who needed him the most and was farthest from him in order to show God's mercy and love. Wow. And those who had seen it, oh, sorry, verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the So, we have eyewitnesses who stuck around. They gave a full accounting. Starting with the deliverance of the demoniac. demoniac. Why do I always say it wrong the first time? I've looked it up so many times, demoniac. And uh, then about the pigs. Notice the order here because it's the right order. What happened to the pigs is nothing compared to what Yeshua did to and for this man. There are many things we don't know about him. Was he married at one point? Was he a father? The only son of a widowed woman? Restoring this man was about more than restoring one person. This potentially restored a family and saved them from disaster. This was a real guy who was not born in that cemetery. He had a past and people connected to him. Or perhaps he was all alone in the world, apart from the community who had had to restrain and push him outside of the towns. You know, you can just imagine the songs of thanksgiving and praise. He's restored to us. What wonderful works of God. Freedom has come to this man and to all of us. Let's go get all of our sick and he can heal them. Let's get crazy Uncle Bob and get him delivered too. Let's have a party. Oh, wait. We can't have a party. Our pigs are all dead. Okay, that was actually a joke. As they, you know, as they probably went right to fear and irritation, but but hopefully there were a few people rejoicing. If he had loved ones, there were people rejoicing. Verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. This isn't the surprising part to me, because their pigs are dead after all. And that was no small financial loss. It was devastating. The part that's shocking to me is that they didn't run to get their sick okay but maybe they didn't know he knew that he could do that too we don't know whether or not yeshua healed the man's cuts and scars because the text doesn't say there are obviously a number of reasons for their reaction i've touched on on some of them already but let's review their demoniac was touched by the gods this is number one their demoniac was touched by the gods and this guy threatened and treated their gods like a rag doll, and is therefore dangerous Thus, they did not order him but begged him to go. Two, he killed all their pigs within probably an hour of arriving. So, just what would happen if he stuck around for a few days? Three, the gods who were expecting those pigs as sacrifices still needed to be appeased and fed. You know, did they dare get caught offering hospitality to the man who made hospitality the gods impossible? This may seem silly, but this is how they thought. Sacrifices were their way of caring for the needs of their gods. Their gods had to eat, or they would weaken and die, and if a god weakens and dies, then the thing he or she is supposed to do won't get done. That means famine, no children, curses galore. Ancient gods weren't all that competent. They weren't expected to be able to gather up victuals for themselves and make the rains come on schedule or row or pull the sun across the sky you know they they couldn't do they didn't multitask they couldn't win your war on an empty stomach or make your wife have a son they probably knew they couldn't kill anyone who, who could toss demons out of a man but they knew they had to get rid of him before things got any worse Verse 18, as he was getting out of the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This is so beautiful. The Greek word parakaleo is used both for the people begging him to leave and the formerly possessed man begging to go with him. The man is longing for companionship and community, but does not choose to return to his own people, whom he would have defined as, by his... He would have been but defined by them over his whole life, okay? You longed for your community in the ancient world. You were them and they were you. How they looked at you determined your self-worth and how you lived up to their expectations defined your acceptability within the community. Not like today, where people are individualistic and shrug off what other people think. What other people think about you within a dyadic or community-based society defined what you thought about yourself. But he was willing to turn his back on them and follow this man who set him free instead. This doesn't look like a huge deal to us, but to the Jewish audience of Mark, they would have caught their breath and... Well, possibly not... You know, there's debates whether this was a Jewish or Gentile audience, okay? very possibly mixed, but they uh, they would have caught their breath in shock that a filthy pagan gentile, who had probably, in their minds, earned every single one of his demons, would choose to follow after the one true God by following Yeshua. It was scandalous. It was awe-inspiring. It was a paradigm buster for sure. Like I said, no family mentioned, but he must have friends. Likely they might have been feeding him all this time. They knew his condition intimately, who he was before, and what he became under demonic torment, and now that he was free, they could know him again. But Yeshua didn't want them all thinking that the demons had just abandoned him on their own, or there were some magical incantations involved. Yeshua loved that man's friends enough to want them to have the witness of the true story. And that true story is about what? Yeshua says it's about God's mercy, not about God's wrath. You know, not about God's wrath on him, not about God's wrath on the demons while the man was just a pawn. But instead, a witness that mercy was the whole point of the deliverance. This wasn't a battle of the gods. This was a battle for a man's life, and that was the story that needed telling. Now, notice what Yeshua does not say. Unlike his cleansing of the leper, he doesn't warn the man to be silent. On the contrary. He tells him to blab the story to all his friends, to everyone. Believe me. It would have spread through the Decapolis relatively quickly. No TV, no radio, no internet, no movie, no book. So yeah, this was like the event of the millennium. Oh, verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis just how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I want you to think about what Yeshua did here in perspective. He and his disciples could have died on the way over. The disciples had rowed and rowed in order to travel miles by boat and much fit in a storm. They arrive, and almost immediately they have to turn back. All this effort to save one pagan from unimaginable torment really puts our pathetic efforts to serve our fellow man into context. <laughs> oh my goodness actually kind of reminds me, I watched um, End of the Spear this weekend again. Man, that movie. If you have never seen End of the Spear, it's an amazing true story uh, about... Well, just watch it. Just watch it. Anyway, I will see you next week. (laughs)